If you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, we would love to, to remedy that, love to, to send you home with that one. Uh, we value God's word here. We believe it's the, uh, the, the thing that God uses to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe it's the, the tool that God uses to uh, grow us and shape us into who he wants us to be individually and as a church. We believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. And so we, we put the, the scriptures at a, at a high level here and we, we value it. We chase after knowing them well. And, and so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we want to fix that. So take that one home. If you want a nicer one, I know where a lost and found is. There's plenty in there. Um, so we are... Uh, we are shutting down our Ephesians series for a little bit, so you may be noticing, well, Isaiah is not Ephesians. Well, you're right. All right. So if you weren't here last week, we said that uh, we were uh, going to shut down our Ephesians series for about a month and a half, several weeks, so that we can focus on Christmas and New Year's stuff. Uh, but don't worry, we'll pick Ephesians back up mid-January, and we'll kick it with full force, and it'll be great. Uh, but for the time being, I want to focus on what I think to be the greatest season of the year. You with me on that? No. <laughs> and listen, some of you are thinking, Christmas. I'm not. Now, Christmas is a part of it, but it's not all of it. I'm, so, I'm talking specifically about Advent. Advent. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to figure out that um, the weeks leading up to Christmas are getting busier and busier every year, right? Anybody feeling the weight of that? So not only do you have the party to go to, but you got the party to plan. Not only do you have gifts to buy, you have gifts to exchange. And if you're like me in my house, you've got to figure out where to put those gifts or find someone else to give those gifts to. Right? Don't judge me. All right. Um, and so you've got the party to plan, and it's got to be perfect. It's got to be flawless. Right? Um, it's it's got to be social media worthy. Anybody feeling the pressure of that yet? It's got to look good on Instagram. You have to work in a Pinterest idea of some sort. All the older people in the room are like, what? <laughs> so all of the social pressures that you felt from friends and family a generation ago to be the best hostess, to be the best whatever, all the unspoken kind of pressure now lives online and is no longer unspoken. What a world we live in, right? Having a good time. The more you pay attention to what's going on this season, the more you start to feel the frustration of just trying to squeeze everything in. Anybody else feeling the pressure of that, or am I alone? Yeah. And so we work harder, we, we tire ourselves out, and maybe you're like me, by the end of this Christmas season, you're sometimes, you're sometimes ready for it to be over. But then there's Advent. Advent is wholly different. Advent literally means the coming or the arrival. And for the follower of Jesus, it's simultaneously about celebrating his first coming while looking forward to his next coming. Advent, when celebrated correctly, is this wholly different thing. Yeah, Advent, can, Advent stuff can just kind of be thrown onto the pile of all the other stuff that we got to do during this season. It can make life more complicated. It can just be one more thing that's got to get done by this point on the calendar. But when Advent is celebrated correctly, it forces us to slow down. It forces us to take our eyes off of the to-do list and then to put them instead 
on a coming king who not only can, but will and is fulfilling all the promises he has made to us. When we celebrate Advent correctly, it forces us to slow down and and take stock of things. A pastor friend of mine likes to say it forces us to take a slow walk to the manger. I like that. No, correction. I need that. Anybody else? So here's what we want to do for the next few weeks. We want to take a slow walk to the manger. We want to we want to take our attention off the hustle and the bustle that just kind of just kind of collects around us that we often dive into of our own devices, right? And, and we want to take our eyes off of that and intentionally put it on these themes of hope and joy and peace and love that the Advent season causes us to think through. And our hope at the end of this is that you'll think Advent is the best season too. Do I need to sell it more than that? Y'all ready to jump in? Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. If you're brand new to the church thing, it'll be helpful for you to know that Isaiah is a prophet to God's people in the land of Judah. uh, And he's writing on behalf of God about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And in verse 1 of chapter 11, Isaiah says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right, so that's interesting. Like anytime you start reading in the 11th chapter of something, you're missing some context, right? Or maybe you do that as a habit, just like to see what happens whenever you're reading through a book. No, when you start something in the 11th chapter of something, you're missing the the entry point of the story. You're missing everything that happened up to that point. And here even more so, because Isaiah's got this weird thing about a, a, a shoot, a little brand new tree sticking up out of an old dead stump. And what's even weirder, the stump's got a name, Jesse. I don't name my stumps. Do you name your stumps? Got one in the backyard called Phil. It's about to have a neighbor named Dan. All right. We don't name stumps, but this stump's got a name. His name is Jesse. So what's going on here? Well, it's probably important for us to understand that in the first 10 chapters of Isaiah... This is not the first time that Isaiah has used the imagery of a tree being cut down or a stump being left. In fact, he uses it over and over and over again in the first ten chapters of Isaiah. The picture that Isaiah is giving us here is that God's wrath is going to be poured out on a haughty and arrogant, prideful nation. He starts out by using this picture to talk about God's people. About the Jews in the land of Judah. He moves on later to using this picture of a a giant, magnificent tree being cut down and a stump remaining to talk about the, the mighty conquering nation of Assyria. Isaiah uses these two pictures to talk about the wrath of God being poured out on a haughty nation. You may be asking, is it possible for God's people to be guilty of being a haughty nation? Sadly, yeah. Isaiah starts out his letter by talking about how Judah is wicked before God's eyes, that even though they participate in religious actions, actions God told them, commanded them to participate in, right? 
Like, if you ever read through the Old Testament, there's a long list of stuff that God commanded his people to participate in, celebrate in certain ways and certain seasons. They are following through with all of these things, but God says, no, 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 your heart is far from me. This is just nothing but religious actions. Why would I want that? In fact, at one point he says to them in Isaiah, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. God is fed up with their religious actions that are void of heart. And because of that, because God sees the heart and not just the outward stuff, God despised all the things that they were doing. And so God tells them he's going to cut them down. He's going to cut down his own people. Chapter 1 ends with God telling the nation of Judah, I'm just going to read it here, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. At the, by the end of chapter 1, God's telling his own people, the tree's coming down. Trees coming down. At the end of chapter 6, God is spelling out to Isaiah that his job is going to be to preach repentance to this wicked nation, but that this wicked nation, God's people, aren't going to listen to him. They'll ignore him. In fact, they'll reject him and reject God's message. And chapter 6 of Isaiah ends with God saying to Isaiah, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. In chapters after that, Isaiah spells out that the judgment of God, that, that God will bring his people through, will be through the mighty empire of Assyria. Here's what's crazy. Assyria is worse than the Jews are. Right on time. Assyria is worse than God's people. They're more wicked than Judah. They're worse Can God use a more wicked nation? Yeah, he can. And in the chapters between chapter 6 and chapter 11, God tells Isaiah to tell his people that judgment will eventually come for Assyria too. Their tree will also be cut down because they are also a haughty nation. But not before he uses them. Judgment will come for God's people first. And through the first few chapters of Isaiah, the picture we are given is that the mighty force, and sometimes the the imagery he uses is this mighty vineyard, that the mighty force and the mighty vineyard of Judah will be cut cut down, and the stump will remain as a reminder of what God has done. But then chapter 11 happens. Chapter 11 happens, and we learn that the stump is not the end of the story. Read verse 1 again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the stump is not the end of the story, is it? God tells his people through Isaiah that life will spring up again after the judgment is over. So that brings us to the next question. Who the heck is Jesse? Not him. Who's Jesse? Well, Jesse is the father of King David. And every good Jew in Isaiah's day would have known it. That's not something they have to spell out for them. 
Jesse is the father of the great king of Israel. The, the king that every Israelite wishes they could go back to. Oh, you remember the days of King David? Man, those are good days. He's the father of the great king of Israel. The king, by the way, who God promised that an heir will sit on his throne forever. But God's bringing judgment. And David's family doesn't sit on the throne anymore. Is there a problem there? Did God break his promise? Not at all. In fact, if you know your Bible well, he's actually fulfilling some other promises he's made to his people. That when they stray from him in these ways, he will bring wrath in these ways. And so the picture that we are given here is that there is a coming king out of the line of David who will rise out of the desolation. When all hope is lost, this king will spring forth and provide hope again. That's the picture that Isaiah gives us in chapter 11. It's an amazing story in its own right. I mean, if it just stood alone right there. The nation has been cut down. The the kingdom has been removed from his line. All hope seems lost. But then again, there's this sprig shooting forth. How great is the day we got hope again. But we can add layers to this because this is a way cooler story than just that. Look at verse 2. Actually, go back to one again. I want to read that again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. You ever seen a picture of a, a shoot sticking up out of a stump? Like, a shoot is not some, some big, massive thing, right? Isaiah doesn't say that they're going to turn around one day, and then all of a sudden, a mighty oak is standing there again. It's this little guy shooting forth, springing up, Uh, This scene that you thought no life could ever come from again, right? Isaiah says that this king is coming in humility. He's not just going to show up one day and say, boom, I'm here. He comes in humility. But look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So this king is coming in humility, but this king ain't no pushover, is he? He's coming in humility, but he's also coming in power. And I don't know how those two things add up. What are some of the things that, that Isaiah said about him? Look at verse, look at verse 2 again. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Those are capital S's for a reason. Anybody know what that means? We're not talking about just character traits here, are we? We're talking about Holy Spirit indwelled character traits. And because of who we're talking about here, we're talking about those things in perfection. It says the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Those things aren't just characteristics. Those things exist in perfection. Isaiah tells us, that he will be a perfect king and he will establish a perfect 
kingdom. But then the back part of verse 3 happens. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Not only will this king be a perfect king and establish a perfect kingdom, but he will also be a perfect judge, Isaiah tells us. He won't be working off of partial or biased information but he will judge with perfect righteousness, he says. There are times that I'm responsible for adjudicating things, right? Maybe you are too. Whether that's in my home or for me here at the church, maybe where you work as well. There are times that I've got to decide between option A and option B. And there are times that I've got to decide between do we go left or do we go right? Do we do it this much or do we do it this much? You in the same boat as me? You make those decisions a hundred times a day? How often have you done that with absolutely flawless, 100% all of the information? I have never in my life been responsible for deciding something when I knew all the variables involved. Ever. I don't know everything. I don't have all the information. There are things that have been withheld from me, things that I don't have the capacity to even figure out. I have never in my life decided something with perfect, flawless, infinitely good wisdom. I don't have it in me. My wisdom on my best day is still partial. But this king will judge perfectly because he does know everything. Not simply relying on his immediate senses, not what his eye sees and his ear hears. He, he knows. He has all the information. Nothing will get by him. Look at verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike down or he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah tells us that this king will be both perfectly gentle with the meek and he will enact perfect justice on the wicked. Everyone will get exactly what they deserve. You long to live in a world like that? I do. I mean, don't you want to live in a place where people, people's needs are are met and the bad guys go away. But Stephen, don't we live in a world like that now? I long to live in a place where those that are taken advantage of are taken care of. And that those who would seek to take advantage of others are taken care of. Anybody else? Man, I long for that day. I want that day to come quickly. Here's what's really crazy and outlandish. As, as incredibly out there in the distance as that sounds, Isaiah's going to turn the volume up to 11 here. Look at verse, look at verse 5. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. That's a very dangerous snake if you didn't know. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea if you're reading that and the first instinct is go that sounds preposterous congratulations you're thinking clearly does anybody think that see that written down and go you know what I'm so happy that happens in my house That is so off the wall crazy that we struggle to even imagine it playing out, right? right? Newsflash. Wolves and sheep don't lay down and take a nap together. I mean, the wolf's going to take a nap after it eats the sheep, but the, in the belly doesn't count as together. <laughs> wolf's going to have a nice little meat coma, but the sheep's not going to like it too much. Wolves and sheep don't lay down together. Newsflash, babies don't play in the poisonous snake pit and come out unharmed. Wolves eat sheep. Dangerous snakes bite. That's the world we live in. And Isaiah goes, not this kingdom. Not under this king. Isaiah gives us a picture here that when this king comes in his fullness, this world will be totally upside down. We're not just talking about a a slightly better day than yesterday. Everything changes in this kingdom to come. The world as we know it will be at a core level different than the world that we're in now. It, It won't be the same. This king will turn the world upside down. We talk about peace on an earthly level sometimes, but that's usually just nothing more than absence of a war far off somewhere else. Right? Isaiah here describes a scenario that is so outrageously uncommon that all we can do is trust what he says. Forget about imagine it play out. I don't even know what that looks like. Just gotta trust him in this moment. A shoot will grow up out of the stump of Jesse, and he will make all things new. The stump is not the end of the story. Here's what I struggle with Jesus has come the first time, and we don't live in a world like that. Right? This coming king has made his first entrance here. We don't live yet in a world of perfect justice and a perfect kingdom under a perfect king. It's not even close to what we live in yet. Jesus has come the first time and we still long for these things. So while we correctly spend a massive piece of our time the next few weeks celebrating the things that Jesus brought the first time, For the follower of Jesus, Advent is just as much about longing for what he will bring the next. Just as much about 
longing for what he will bring. The next advent for the follower of Jesus is just about just as much about longing for his return today. We're not simply witnesses to someone else's waiting a couple thousand years ago. We are waiting. The same angst and anticipation that the Jews felt in Isaiah's day is the same angst that we feel today, right? We long for the hope he is bringing. It has shown its face. It is, it, we've had the first little glimmer of a shoot, but we are waiting for the tree to grow. We long for the coming of this great king. We live in a world broken and stained by sin, and we wait eagerly for the day he will come back. We long for that day to come, but we have hope because the stump is not the end of the story. There is a shoot. He has come first in humility, but our king will one day rule forever in perfect righteousness. And that leaves us with verse 10. In that day, be glorious. Isaiah tells us that this perfect king will not only rule forever, but will rule over all peoples forever. Which means, follower of Jesus, that our job until that day comes again is to invite nation after nation after nation after nation after nation to gather around his throne. That our job until that day comes is to make sure as many as possible are witness to it. Are citizens of this new kingdom. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you press into God. You trust that, that this good king, this good wise, righteous, perfect in every way king, that when he commands something of us in this life today, maybe we ought to trust him. Right? Like the commands of God on our heart and life, our actions, our everyday whatever, they're, <laughs> they're not some demands by an outside force who's not concerned with you the judgments and rulings of the perfect king that will reign forever. Right? So we press into God. Whatever he's called you to in this room, listen, you go do that. Trust that it'll be all right. We press into to God. We cling to the hope that he offers when it seems like all hope is gone, Right? top of that, he's called us to be ambassadors of a perfect kingdom to come. So are the people around you in the circle of influence that you have, are they getting a sense of just how upside down this kingdom is? Listen, it's imperfect. You can't mirror the things that you need to mirror, but man, are you giving it what you got? Are the people around you getting a sense, getting a picture, a glimpse of this upside down kingdom and this perfect king? Are they getting a, a shoddy version of that? I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond to 
God by pressing into what he's called you to do and to be. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time for you to, to maybe put feet and action to, to words on the page here. Man, I, I, I think you know what he's calling you to, and I don't have to flesh that out for you. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm glad you're here. Hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. I do. We, we hope that this is a place where you can come in and get your questions answered and, and all these kinds of things. Here's what you need to walk away with today. Hope for the follower of Jesus is not an abstract thought. It's in the person and work of Jesus. He has come the first time and paid the debt for our sin. He reconciles us to the Father by purchasing us for himself and he will one day come again and claim what is owed to him. Maybe you're here this morning for the first time you want to repent of your sin and follow Jesus as the Lord. For the first time you want to be one of his. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple people up front here to talk if that's something that would be helpful for you to walk through that. You respond however God's calling you to respond today. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Isaiah. Thank you for being a God of hope. Thank you for being a God who we can trust will fulfill all your promises. For being a king who will rule in perfect righteousness forever. God, for those here who are being called by you to take some step of action in, in obedience, to trust you in this way or to follow you better in that way, would you help us see your bigness and your goodness? That you are a God who is infinitely worthy of our trust. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you draw them to yourself? Would you show yourself off as the good king? God, we love you. As we sing, as we respond, would you do a mighty work in your people? In your name we pray. Amen.